you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Revelation. I want to add another layer to this epic revelation of Jesus Christ to us. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 12, beginning with verse 7. Revelation 12, verse 7. It says this, then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the world, the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God in the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to, to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. That is the word of the Lord. Can you say amen? amen. The last week we began talking about the book of Revelation. And Jesus comes to the apostle John in the island of Patmos to give him an understanding of what was really happening in this very bleak, very difficult period in church history. They were coming out of a horrible time of persecution and going into another heavy persecution. And when you read prophetic messages, you have to understand that the prophets, by the Spirit of God, is weaving the past, the, pe the present, and the future all at once. And what the prophet is trying to do is to give you eternal perspective because when you are in the middle of a persecution, it seems like there's no hope. It seems like there's no way out. And so Jesus comes to say, wait a minute, there's more than meets the eye. What you're going through is not the end of a story. We've been in this battle for a very long time. So I want to talk to you today about this cosmic struggle that we find ourselves in, that they found themselves in. And as I said last week, my heart desire is to ground us into the Word of God in His right context. I don't believe in unhealthy fears. I don't believe in sensationalism. I don't believe in misinterpreting scriptures to try to make it fit our own narrative. It's important to go back if we want to go forward. Because the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself. But thankfully, we know who owns history, and he's, he writes his own history. But here we see, my friends, that we are born in the middle of a cosmic struggle. Some people have a hard time with the concept of the enemy. It sounds antiquated for modern times. Clearly, we're not talking about the caricature version of the enemy. I'm not talking about an enemy with a pitchfork, red tights, and horns. My friends, the enemy is way more sophisticated than that. The enemy 
is way more clever than that. And the enemy is way more shrewd than what we think he is. What I'm talking about is this undeniable presence of a dark force in the world that is hard to ignore. I don't even think you have to be a believer to sense that there is a dark presence in our world. Just think about a couple of questions. Why is it so much harder to do the right things than it is to do the wrong things? Why the gravitational pull towards destruction, apathy, laziness, indifference, hate, division, addictions, lust, brokenness, and I can go on and on. Here's a very simple one. Why is it so hard to invite someone to come to church, but it's so easy to invite someone to go to a strip club? Why is it so hard to invite someone to come worship God, but it's so easy to invite someone to go worship a football game? Why is it so hard to invite someone to come get life, but it's so easy to invite someone to go do some destructions? I tell you why, because we live behind enemy lines. I'm not talking about the caricature version of my mama. My mama said, football is of the devil. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a water boy theology, I'm talking about a reality that even now, as I speak, there is a battle in your mind to stay focused to hear the word of God in this place. I'm talking about an enemy that goes to church with you and would love to distract you away from the will of God and the purposes of God. I'm talking about an enemy that is strategic, an enemy that studies you and knows your game plan, and sometimes he executes it better than you do. Like I said last week, I'm interested in grounding us in the regional context of scriptures. How does this cosmic struggle translate in the natural? Because too many people focus on things outside of your control. I'm more concerned with God, what is our role in this cosmic struggle? And how do we not live with unhealthy fears, but how do we live with the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom? What can we learn from them? Because that's the whole reason why we've given the scriptures. The goal is to learn from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Notice the scriptures doesn't hide anything. Scriptures is not painting a picture that it's not real. It's not Disney. The struggle is real. And the enemy is real. The Bible has many names for the enemy, calls them the dragon, Again, we talked about this last week, symbolisms, not an actual dragon, calls him a beast, the devil, Satan. And if you notice here, it says his main strategy, one of his main strategy is to accuse. He's the accuser. Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. Accusation, please. Pay attention is one of the enemy's main weapons against the believer. He accuses the believer, the Bible says, here day and night. Even now as I'm talking to you, some of y'all are plagued with accusations in your mind. Where does that come from? Personal accusations like, you're not a real Christian, you're a hypocrite. I know what you did last night. I know what you did last week. Some of y'all, I know what you did 10 years ago is still playing you, still accusing you. To which we must reply, my friends, as believers, please write the scripture down. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are under Christ Jesus. Please understand, I'm interested in a mature word this morning. The worst thing you can do with accusations is to try to fight back with your feelings. 
Your feelings will always betray you because your feelings are fleeting. So the accusations come and you start to have a conversation and you don't realize that the more you allow your feelings to dictate the day, most likely the conversation is gonna end in more accusations. This is where the believer has to know that the weapon that we fight is not the same weapons that the world uses. We fight with weapons that can destroy strongholds that he tries to build in our minds and our hearts. You have to know the word. When he came to Jesus, Jesus didn't say, I think, I feel, maybe, perhaps, perchance. Jesus said, no, it is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He'd rather you have statistics about Brady than to know the word of God over your life. Now there is therefore no more condemnation for those who are under Christ Jesus. That is the only name that he fears under heaven and earth is the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus has power to cast away any evil that comes against you. But he's also clever in bringing corporate accusations. It blows my mind how many believers are not aware of the corporate accusations that the enemy brings to bring division among the brethren. Division comes out of accusations. Please pay attention. He never comes and says, I am the enemy and I'm real to ruin everything. He brings, please, this is a mature word, he brings theological differences and tedious arguments he, to fuel the fire of pride and us focusing on being right instead of being righteous. We end up fighting each other over who is more theologically woke, not realizing that we're all asleep because we all fell asleep to the accusations that he brought against each other. My friends, you gotta wake up. This is a warfare that we're in. We're not here to sing Kumbaya, we're here to fight the fight of faith. I think the ultimate goal is to turn you yourself into an accuser. If the enemy can turn you into an accuser, then guess what? You are doing his biddings for him. When you accuse, you are playing right into the enemy's hands. Do not agree with him, the Bible says. You must resist him when he wants to turn the very powerful weapon called the tongue. And the Bible says it's not right for you to praise God one moment and to curse with the same tongue that God ordained you to bless people with. And when you're accusing, you're agreeing with the devil and not with God. My friends, pay attention to the real warfare. The real warfare is in your minds, it's in your heart, it's in your tongue, which turns into actions and reactions. One of the greatest understanding of the warfare is how you react. Not how you act, it's how you react. He knows the tactics, he knows the buttons to push, he knows how to get you. If he can't get you with division, he'll get you with discouragement. If he can't get you with discouragement, he will get you with blasphemy. He can't get you with blasphemy, he'll get you with lust. If he can't get you with lust, he will get you with addiction. He can't get you with addiction, he'll get you with indifference. He can't get you with indifference, he'll get you with laziness. If he can't get you with laziness, he'll make you overwork. He knows you. Sometimes more than you know yourself. You know why? Because we're not stopping to examine ourselves. The Bible says take an inventory, see if you truly are in the faith. Don't just assume that you are because you're in the house. Even the demons believe that there's a God and they shudder but they don't change. Half the battle is being here, the other half is getting a hold of what God is trying to tell you. He loves to accuse. People don't really realize that they're doing their bidding by talking about other people who are made in the image and likeness of God. 
Anytime you talk bad about another human being, you didn't agree with God, you agree with the devil. Anytime you talk behind someone's back, you're doing the devil's bidding. Anytime you go to bed angry at your spouse, he wins. Anytime, instead of encouraging your children, you exasperate them and you bring judgment to your own house with your own words. And anytime he can separate us from each other, he wins. So many people have fallen right into this without realizing it. Why? Because we're more concerned with being right than being righteous. Here's how we did it to the first believers. You gotta pay attention to this cosmic struggle. I didn't, don't go there yet. <laughs> when I look over there, you can go. A little feisty this morning. Please hear me on this. It's when you conform to a trouble-free life is when you should be concerned. I was talking to one of the men of the church that I admire so much, Peter Ruda, and we were saying how he said, when I don't have the conviction anymore, I get worried. If you're no longer convicted by sin, if you're no longer convicted by compromises, you should be worried. Matter of fact, if you go a week or two without any type of warfare, you should be worried because you live behind enemy lines. See, the problem is we want to come to church, sing kumbaya, get some goosebumps, and then go home. But the reality is, no, you're in the middle of a war, whether you like it or not. The key is, are you going to fight back or are you just going to take it and, be, and live like everybody else? Remember one time a guy said, I just want to go to church to chill. I'm like, yeah, me too, buddy. I wish that was true. We create these romanticized ideas that are not real. You live in a warfare. And if he can lull you to sleep, the concern is, think about this. If he can lull you to sleep, you're like everybody else. He's like, I don't have to worry about that one. He's asleep. You should wake up in the morning and hell should go, uh oh, he's awake. But some people wake up in the morning and they're like, oh, just another sleeper. He's cute, religious though, but he doesn't make any difference because he lives in conformity. That's why the Bible says, do not conform to the ways of the world. Here's the reality is, the more serious you take your faith, the more in danger of a reaction. Problem is, some of us don't want any reactions. We don't want any troubled waters. Therefore, we live a very conformed life, even in church. Simply living according to the teachings of Jesus, the first believers were an unspoken condemnation to a way of a pagan lifestyle. Just the way they lived incited warfare. Christian ethics was a criticism of the pagan life. It's just the way they live. The way you live will cause a reaction. And I would say this, man, if the way you live doesn't cause any reactions, then you're not living, you're just existing. If you have no haters, you ain't living. If you have no pushback, you ain't living. You're just existing. If we're looking for a trouble-free life, please do not be a Christian. You can be a nice religious folk, but it doesn't mean you are a follower of Jesus. In the first century, 
These first believers were accused of many things. Because why? Because people don't realize that when you're accusing, you're falling prey to the enemy. And I want to show you how this looks practically. So I'm not talking about some la-la land over there. I'm talking about what's happening in your mind and hearts right now in our society as we speak. He comes to accuse, but he doesn't come and say, I'm the accuser. (laughs) So in the first century, these first believers went through some stuff because they simply crossed over the line and said, I'm going to follow Jesus. And the moment you say that, be ready for the accusations. Some of y'all, I've heard you say so many times, the moment I got baptized, all hell broke loose, to you which I say, welcome to the faith. Now you're really living. Before you were just existing. So what does this look like? Let me get practical with you. In the first century, the Holy Spirit came. The believers began to live for Jesus. And the accusations began. And it's still here today. There's nothing new under the sun. Let me show you some of the accusations. Go ahead. Number one, they were accused of being a cult by Orthodox Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. The Orthodox Jews who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah began to persecute the believers. Matter of fact, drove them out of synagogues and says, you don't belong here anymore because you believe in this weird thing that this man Jesus is the savior of the world, the Messiah who was to come. If you've been in our church long enough, you've probably been accused of being part of a cult. Welcome to the faith. It's funny that we live in the Northeast, and the Northeast was highly influenced by the, by the Catholic Church, so anytime you go to a church that's not Catholic, you must be in a cult. But no one questions, maybe I already was part of, okay. Second, they were accused, get this, they accused of being a cult, they accused of being unpatriotic atheists by the Romans. True story, this is history, I'm not making this up. The Romans said, you guys don't worship our gods. You don't have any statues, you don't have any idols, we don't see you like lighting up candles and doing all this, like where's your god? You guys must be atheists. Because they're like, no, we worship a God who doesn't need idols. He doesn't need anything. He is the God of the universe and he's with us everywhere we go. And we celebrate him. And he, he's not confined to a temple. Why? Because we now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wherever we are, our God is. Some people would say some believers are unpatriotic in that day and age. Because we don't believe that any president is the, is the Messiah. Told you there's a difference between being an American Christian and a Christian living in America. They were accused, get this, of incest and cannibalism. Why? History. Google it. Believers called each other brothers and sisters. In that time period, they thought, oh, weird. Brothers and sisters, isn't that like a term for like families who kind of like are together in a weird way? These people must be into incest. Amazing how a misunderstanding can lead to accusations. Cannibalism, why? Whoa, they don't let you go into their services and there's this thing that they, we heard that they do, they eat and, and they drink blood of a guy named Jesus. Cannibals! Amazing how misunderstanding can turn into accusations. And people don't understand the things of God They'll misinterpret it 
and turn it into accusations. But please hear me, people are just ignorant of the fact that there is an accuser who's putting words in their mouths, in their hearts, in their minds. So we don't wrestle flesh and blood, we wrestle principalities of darkness who is trying to come and discredit the people of God. Pay attention, rebuke the right things. Little weird. I heard this. Why does the pastor have holes in his jeans? He's got to be a false teacher. Yeah, he's extra holy. <laughs> to which I want to reply, show me the scriptures where Jesus had a shirt and tie. We didn't even have shirts and ties. I should be wearing robes and sandals. I'm telling you, ignorance leads to misunderstanding, leads to accusations, playing right into the hands of the enemy, missing the point that the man might have holes in his jeans, but he's telling you about the greatest man who's ever lived. His name is Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. But what if he had a suit on, but his heart was vile. They accused of being not trustworthy because it seems like this is a new religion. They don't do it like we do it. How many times misunderstanding comes just because we're used to doing something a certain way. They don't do it like we do it. Back in those days, in our day and age, we loved new. New iPhone, word. New kicks, word. Like, back in those days, anything new was looked at with skepticism. Because everything was grounded in history and tradition. And to which I say, there's nothing new under the sun. Some people look at technology and they get weirded out by it. But let's be honest, it's not technology, it's how you use technology. And what you're trying to advance through technology. But anytime something new is introduced in our midst, people get weirded out. Did you know there was a time period where some churches would not have drums because it's weird? People like, we should only do hymns. But the funny thing is, if you look at history, hymns came out of a time period where, where church fathers would take songs from bars and translate them into hymns so people can actually say, oh, that's a catchy tune. What are you guys talking about? Actually, we're not talking about drinking and doing all that. We're talking about Jesus. And so it's funny how time changes traditions and perspectives. It's all taboo, basically. And we forget that preferences in theology, it's not the same thing. But that takes maturity to realize that. That God's boombox is not playing your favorite song. Y'all didn't get that. Because everybody thinks this is the way we should do it. Why? Because you decided you're God and this is how I want to be worshiped. <laughs> Y'all ain't ready for this word. <laughs> we have a tendency to create God in our own image and likeness. So if I like a certain song, that must be God likes that song. If I like a certain preacher, that's the only one that God likes. <laughs> if I like a certain way of doing ministry, that must be the way that God does it. Now realizing, we're talking about the God of the universe. He could be playing music that we never heard before. We could probably get to heaven and he goes, y'all didn't do anything I asked you to do. <laughs> that's the thing, right? We can all be wrong, but we can't all be right. And lastly, they were accused of sexual repression by society at large. Why? Go study this. I'm not making this up. First century 
sexuality ran rampant. To which I say, there's nothing new under the sun. Christians begin to come around and say, wait, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't just have sex with just anybody. Back in those days, you can go to a Greek mythology temple and have an orgy and call it a spiritual encounter. To which the believer says, no, 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 no. That's not the way God created us. God created you and everything he created has purpose and meaning attached to it. And Christians begin to focus on sexuality through the means of a family where there's actually healthy boundaries when a husband and wife can actually enjoy what God created and society at large begin to poke fun at it and begin to, to, to call them lame and all kinds of names. And, and now what we're saying is it is dangerous. Dangerous to tell a kid that her sexual identity is found in his, in his or her creator. It's dangerous. Are you paying attention? That you can't tell a 10-year-old, no, you don't identify as that, honey. You identify who God created you to be. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. Sexual repression. Led to them being called all kinds of names. And that's the same thing today. Homophobes and all the other phobes that we have in our society. Why? Because we decided, I'm God. I get to decide my sexuality, my gender, and who I sleep with. And God says, have your way. See, our struggle is not sexuality. I hope you understand this. This is a mature word. Our struggle is, is idolatry. At the root of sin is idolatry. I am God. I get to decide what I want. So as you can see, these things get translated today. But it's all accusations of the enemy. And if we're not rooted in the word, then we're going to be confused. We're going to be shamed. We're going to be looked at as repressive, uneducated, fantasies, people who are holding society back. But if you know history, the people that have really pushed society forward. Go study history. I'm not making this stuff up. But the good news is, it tells you not just the accusation, but it tells you how they overcame and how you can overcome. It says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And 2,000 years later, that is still the same way that a believer can overcome. It's by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of your testimony. Let's make it this more clear. What we mean by that is this. The first believers overcame by the blood of the Lamb, what they believed, and by their testimony, how they lived. Why? Because what you believe determines how you live, and how you live is determined by what you believe. Because belief implies action. Not just wishful thinking. The blood of the lamb, the sacrifice, overcomes sin, overcomes the evil one. David Guzik, commentary theologian, says, the blood speaks to us of the real physical death of Jesus Christ in our place, on our behalf before God. That literal death in our place and the literal judgment he bore on our behalf is what saves us. The blood, my friends, is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. 
Romans 5.8 puts it this way. Romans 5.8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In other words, accusations may come. God is not surprised by the accusations. And he says, come under my umbrella because while you were still a sinner, I still love you. I still died for you. I still came through for you. I am still your God. See, the thing is, God is not waiting to see how you behave to die for you. God already died for you. That's why the enemy has no weapon against the blood of Jesus. Why? Because he has freely given himself to those who believe. The greatest, since we love goat terms nowadays, greatest of all time, the greatest preacher of all time, Charles Spurgeon, says, Satan makes sin seem pleasurable, but the cross revealed its bitterness. If Jesus died because of sin, men begin to see that sin must be a murderous thing. When you come face to face with the reality of the cross, you also come face to face with the reality of your sins. And you don't take it lightly, because you realize someone had to die. This is so humbling for me to live. I don't live without someone giving his life. And we know the power of blood. Blood signifies life. No blood, no life. That's the blood of the lamb given for the ransom of many. But they also overcame because they applied the blood not in a literal sense. I pray you catch this. This is why cannibalism was weird because it's not like they were actually drinking the blood of Jesus. It's a symbol of the power of Jesus' blood on the cross shed for the forgiveness of sins. But it was more than just a theological mindset. It was how it empowered them to live a certain way. Testimony is how you live. You know, we say, this is my testimony. Question is, is your life reflecting how what you're singing? You can sing that all day long, but if your life is not reflecting it, it's not a testimony, you're still in a test. You gotta go through the test to have a testimony. They overcame by the blood and by how they lived. The blood, the symbol, the sacrifice empowered their lifestyle. This is where the disconnect is with a lot of us. We have a head knowledge of it, but we don't have an actual life of it. They lived, my friends, because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. They had a lifestyle that backed up their conviction. Same for us today. Let me show you how they lived, what their testimony is, and what should be for us believers. Number one, go ahead. They were moved by a burning conviction. These people were driven, man. Why? Because they're like, the event happened. What is the event? God came in the person of Jesus Christ. God lived in our midst. God invaded time. Now his spirit is our work. His spirit has invaded us. We can't deny it. It's powerful. It burns in us. And it doesn't matter what you do. We have this blessed and unshakable assurance even in the face of death. We'd rather die with our Savior to deny him. <laughs> Told you. How would a believer read these words in Afghanistan right now? Because they might face that reality. How does a believer live in Nigeria right now with the persecution that they're facing? You think it's not real? It's because your news only tells you what happens in America. Selectively. But the real news is there are over 20 countries who are considered to be persecuted countries where it's almost illegal to say you are a follower of Jesus. They're like, the event is real. The spirit is our work. We can't deny him. You might have to kill us 
but we're going to live this earth with that blessed assurance that Jesus is Lord. The second thing, it was, it, was, it, was, it was tangible in their life, in their testimony, my friends. The second thing is this, is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, God came, he invaded the earth, and God loves people, and God died for the sins of the world. God wants to connect with us. That's the gospel. Met a widely felt need in the hearts of people. My friends, there's nothing new under the sun. I don't care how technology advanced we get, there's still a need for a savior in our hearts that nothing else will satisfy. And the more we try to live without God, the more deformed we become. That's what we're facing in our nation. We think we got this, God, and the more messed up we are. In the Roman Empire, the gospel made all the difference. Why? Because it brought a new moral compass like we like to call this the new normal in a depraved society. The Romans were so depraved that they had no love for one another. Their, their concept of entertainment was to go to a stadium and watch people kill each other live. That's how depraved. And what is our form of entertainment today? Watch people do it. <laughs> Movies and video games. How many kills did you get today? That's our form of entertainment. Talking about a depraved mind. The Romans were so depraved that if you have a child and you didn't want the child, because the child was not male, it's not going to continue your seed, they would throw a baby child out to die. Talking about a depraved mind. Are we, are we that different now? Because we're fighting abortion right now. Why? It's not a baby, it's a fetus. People begin to see meaning and purpose in the believers. These people live different. They live like they have a different normal. They don't go around killing, they go around blessing. They don't go around hurting, they go around healing. They don't go around like they don't have meaning and purpose. Seems like they have meaning and purpose. The way they live was attractional to the first century society who was depraved, looking for some type of purpose. Not the new under the sun. The gospel introduced a revolutionary new attitude towards human life. They actually value life. You know what the Christians would do? Throw the baby out, they go get it. We'll raise it. They go to the gladiator fighting and go, this is inhumane, what are we doing? Why are we killing people? The Christians were for life. The, please hear me, the narrative today is that we are anti-things. No, what if we are pro-things? There's a difference. I don't preach anti-things, I preach pro-things. I preach pro-life and, and pro-marriage and pro-family. So the gospel, my friends, to me, it still is the answer to anyone looking for meaning and purpose. They view, listen, even on slavery, people don't realize Christians led the way of fighting slavery from day one. Their view on woman, Jesus was the first to elevate woman in a patriarch society. Jesus had woman followers and the disciples did the same thing. They're like, this doesn't seem to have different classes of people. No, because there is no male or female, Greek or Gentile, slave, or free, we're all the same. Do you know what the gospel does? It levels the playing field. It says everyone is the same, everyone's welcome, everyone is loved, everyone can come into the will and the purpose of Jesus. That's what he did. Number three, 
It's my favorite. It's, it's their practical, go ahead, practical expression of Christian love. In other words, they didn't just talk about this stuff. They did it. My problem with Christianity in our day and age is we talk a lot. We don't do a lot. Everybody has the head knowledge of what we need to do, but the tangible life is where the testimony is. Here's what these guys did, man. They, they brought equality and respect for all people. They didn't see you as certain gender. They didn't see you as certain status. They saw you as people, imago Dei, made in the image of God. So everybody has value. If you're a slave, you have value. If you're children, you have value. If you're, if you're a prostitute, you have value. If you're a governor, you have value. There was no ranking among people because they understood the gospel is for everyone. They brought a true sense of community to people. This is where the word church comes from, community, ecclesia, gathering of believers, that everybody's welcome. They cared tangibly for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. This is why the brother of Jesus, James, only used the word religion once. Matter of fact, the word religion is only used twice in the entire Bible. One of them is used by the brother James. He says, true religion, true religion is the ones who takes care of the poor, the widows, and the orphans. He says, don't come with that nonsense of telling us what true religion is. Show us by how you care for people. Let me bring you a little conviction to the room. It's impossible to not drive by a homeless person in our city. How do you see them? As a nuisance? as a trouble, as a problem, or do you see them as imago Dei, made in the image of God? Here's what we don't realize. The Bible says sometimes God will do those things to test your heart. He says you don't even know. There might be times you're entertaining angels, you didn't even recognize it. Why? Because you were so focused on judging them as opposed to embracing them. We didn't come up with prison ministry. They did. They've been doing this since first century. Romans were like, prisoners are the scum of the earth. Jesus says, I came to set the captives free. And we'll go where people are. Did you know this? Our next campus is gonna be behind bars, a Shirley MCI. We're starting a prison campus. And they will, those will say, why would you spend your energy and your time with the scum of the earth? Because I want to be where Jesus would be. Yes. And this was a saying, my friends, this was a saying among the secular. They would say this, see how these Christians love one another. Can I say something from the depths of my soul? Can, we, can, can people say that about us? See how these Christians love one another tangibly, not just by words, but by actions. See how these New Life South Coast people love one another. They really care, and they really minister, and they really help, and they really bless, and they don't just talk about it, they are about it. Because... Listen, give me someone who knows their theology back and forth, and they can quote the Greek and the Hebrew, but they don't do anything to help anybody. Listen, spare me from religious people who know everything, but they don't do anything. Find it interesting, the people that has most criticism and most accusations are the ones who do nothing. <laughs> Quiet in this Baptist church. Practical. Number four, God, this is so good, became attainable for everyone. They had many religions, but no relationship. They start to look at these Christians like, man, you guys got something we don't have. That to me is one of the greatest compliments that someone can pay you. What is it that you have that I don't have? We work in the same place, we make the same money, but you seem to have something different on you. 
That's when you know you've crossed over from just being religious to following Jesus. You don't have to say anything. The Bible says, not the Bible, St. Francis says, preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. Is your life preaching? Worse is when we preach a lot with our mouth, but our lives are not preaching. If the greatest compliment is, what is it that you have that I don't have? The worst compliment is, what is it that you have that I don't have? Quiet in this Baptist church this morning. But through the believers, you can know Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is so real. Can we have a moment? Do you remember when you crossed over from just believing in God to actually knowing God? Do you remember how freeing that was, how amazing that was, that I don't have to go kneel, sit, kneel, sit, kneel, sit, kneel, sit, kneel, sit, knit, 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 sit, knit, knit, sit, knit, sit, jam, uh, uh, uh. But God invaded and he became real and no one can tell you anything because you're like, man, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. (laughs) Ain't nothing like that personal walk with God that puts a pep to your step. This is why they were able to withstand opposition and persecution because they knew too much. Do you know too much? Because I feel like people know too little. What do I mean? If you walk away from this thing because someone talked you out of it, you know too little. My conviction is Peter's conviction. I don't know if you know Peter, but he's the loudmouth. He's from New Bedford. I love Peter because Peter spoke his mind. When Jesus preached the cannibalistic message, eat my flesh, drink my blood, people were like, ew, like, this church just got weird. We out. And the Bible says people left. And Jesus looked at his disciples, because they were also like, yo, if you go, I'll go, man. Like, <laughs> this is getting weird. And Peter said, where are we going to go? Do you ever have those moments? Can we have an honest moment in church? That things can get so hard that you might think about quitting, but then you get to that place of like, where am I gonna go? I've seen what the world has to offer. My worst day with Jesus is better than my any worst day without him. Hey. I've had those moments, I think about quitting every Monday. I'm a preacher, it's what we do. We'll give everything we get, and then we feel like, what are we doing? And then when I think about my life, and I thought about it this week, I'm like, God, I can't imagine life without you. I can't. Hear me when I tell you this, I don't talk to you as a pastor, I talk to you as a human being. I'm not a believer because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor because I'm a believer. And I can't look at my life and I see the hands of God all over it. I just can't. Every time I stop, by the way, anytime you get discouraged, it's time to count your blessings. That's what I do. I start to count my blessings and everything that God has blessed me with and the life that I get to live and the family I get to have and, and the impact I get to make. Listen, come hell or high water, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Where am I going to go? I'm 23 years deep. Imagine go out in the world and be like, ah, changed my mind. Which club we're hitting today? 23 years later, they're like, we don't even talk like that anymore. Like, who talks like that? <laughs> you need to get your game up. 
guy, I'm just, just let me end. Let me land this plane. But my friends, they, they brought a real tangible relationship with the Lord. It wasn't just religious routine. People knew religious routine. Can I tell you something? Their theology wasn't even that exciting. If you live in the first century, you're like, hey, my Savior rose from the dead. They'd be like, yeah, so what? Caesar believes he rose from the dead. My Savior is the Son of God. Yeah, Caesar believes he's the Son of God. My Savior is the Lord. Uh, Caesar's Lord. So it wasn't so much their theology, it's how they lived. It's their lifestyle that people were like, these people are different. They actually do something. We just philosophize. <laughs> they live the truth. That's what we need. Listen, stop being so consumed with when is the end going to come? Are we going to get into the Christian bus with our little fish in the back and go to Jesus? <laughs> that is not the gospel. The gospel is infiltrate and be the light and salt of the world. That's the gospel. Seriously. Let me get in trouble for a second. Enough with bad movies and bad novels about people being left behind, and let's go for the people who are left behind so they can know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Enough with bad art. God is too good for us to be doing this lame stuff. Sometimes they look at us weird because we are weird. Can we just confess for a second? Sometimes it has nothing to do with the accusation of the enemy. Sometimes we brought it upon ourselves. You're weird. Instead of telling people about Jesus, you're telling people about 666, Mark of the Beast. They don't even know Jesus yet. We're so consumed with the second coming, most people don't even know the first coming. about the first coming, they might fall in love with the Jesus that we all love so much. And they won't miss the second. If you get the first, you won't miss the second. I read Revelation. I don't, I don't get worry sick and fearful. It's actually exciting. He said, I behold, I come and I will make all things new. And the last point, my friends, they were willing to embrace martyrdom because they knew Jesus. You know what martyrdom means? It just simply means witness. Who said that? Jesus did. You will be my. But you didn't think he meant to death for some people. You will be my witnesses. You'll be my martyrs. But as they kill you, they can't kill you. Peace even in death. Go read real history of believers who sang hymns as they were being crucified and burned alive. And you know what that did? He attracted many people to follow Jesus. Because they like, these people have something that we don't have. How can you face death with peace? Why? Because you know the one who tasted death and he speaks to you from the other side of the grave and saying, come, we're going home. I'm with you every step of the way. First martyr, first witness was Stephen, stoned to death as he was dying. He said, I see heaven open in front of me. Jesus is Lord of my life. This faith is real, my friends. Enough with the kumbaya, enough with the terrible theology. We need to embrace the gospel and live the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the world needs, real witnesses. And if it comes to dying, I'd rather die with Jesus than to die without him. Amen. 
Go read stories of church fathers like Paul the Carp, burned alive. Go read stories of martyrs in China, in Nigeria, in Singapore, in the Middle East, because they have that conviction that Jesus is Lord. It's not how long you live, it's how well you live and who you live for. I don't want to lie at your funeral. You know, preachers, we lie at funerals. We're forced to lie. Oh, he was a good guy. He was a good person. He was a good guy. He was a good person. I'm getting ready to do a funeral. It's very personal. But I'll do it with hope because I know he lived for Jesus. And I was with this family this week, and I told them, I said, as heartbreaking death is, my faith is ever more real when I face it. Because we know that death is not a period, it's a comma. A body may go to waste, but a soul lives for all eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't believe in unhealthy fears. I don't believe in sensationalism. But are you ready for that? It's the most gut-wrenching thing we'll face on this side of life. It's our worst enemy. And he said to us, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in those moments, I feel like the two realities converge. I'm going to talk to you this next week about the real meaning of heaven. Not the caricature version of heaven, but what do these guys meant when they talked about a kingdom of heaven? That's what I want to go next week, because it's real. But it's not real when you die, it's real the moment you embrace Jesus as the Lord of your life. The kingdom of heaven invades you. And you live with that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Why do we bow our heads? I just, just for personal reflection. So we're not distracted. We live behind enemy lines. We are caught up in a cosmic struggle between good and evil. But we overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. And by our testimony, how we live because of that blood. My prayer for us this morning is that our lives, our lifestyles, we reflect the goodness of Jesus Christ. And we embrace the challenge of being his people. Even when it seems like things are going from bad to worse, our brothers and sisters have faced worse than we have. So let's pray today for that blessed assurance. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you've never trusted in Jesus as the Lord of your life, I pray you take this moment and ask him to invade your life, forgive you of your sins, and make you whole, make you new. Fall in love with his first coming, and you won't be afraid of his second one. So Father, I pray right now, as only you can, confirm what we just preached in the hearts, minds, and souls of all of us. I pray that we can taste and know that you are good. Even when things are not good. And we have this blessed assurance 
Jesus is Lord. And because he is Lord, we live with that burning conviction. We live as light and salt in an evil and perverted generation. And we don't ask you to take us out. We ask you to put us in, coach. Let us be your hand and feet. Let us be a tangible reminder of your goodness to a dying world. That we don't fear no evil. For your rod and your staff will comfort us. And surely your goodness and mercy will follow us every day of our lives all the way to eternity. We hope this talk has encouraged and challenged you. If it was helpful, share it with a friend. For more info, visit newlifesouthcoast.com. Until next time, have a blessed week.